Welcome to A Flash of Beauty, the podcast, an audio experience dedicated to the further exploration of Bigfoot and the people Bigfoot has revealed itself to. What started as a documentary of personal narrative encounter stories and expert testimony has now shifted into a deeper inquiry into the forever changed lives of those that have witnessed firsthand this hidden truth. My name is Tobe Johnson co-producer of Flash of Beauty Bigfoot Revealed. Join me along with the crew and creators of this doc, director Brett Eichenberger, producer Jill Rimmen-Snyder, and cinematographer Michael Ferry, as we go back into the trees to sit down once again with each guest in search of the truth, no matter how strange. All right, back with me again is the film crew from Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed, Brett Eichenberger, Jill Remesnyder, and Michael Ferry. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 All right, so we have a great guest again here. Um, you know, Rich Germo is our guest, and Rich, along, uh, you know, the last five years or so, I've gotten to get to know on a personal level. And uh, Rich has had an intense background as a police officer and a Bigfoot witness and Bigfoot investigator. But a lot of people don't know, and we kind of get into this out of the gate, that Rich was deeply involved with what is known as the Sasquatch Genome Project and also is the one of the co-founders of what is known as the Olympic Project, which is a serious flesh and blood organization out here looking into uh, the Bigfoot conundrum. And so um, we talk about that because as all these interviews go through uh, their motions in this documentary, there's a lot on the cutting room floor and uh, we get into that. So tell me what you guys thought of our interview. I think, like I said, you know, earlier, um, we really, really were just kind of blown away by Rich and what Rich had to say. And it's one of the best interviews that we've done. And, and fortunately with the running length of a documentary, we couldn't include more, you know, I wanted to include the entire the entire interview and the plan in, in the future is to make that interview in its entirety available for everyone. So stay tuned for for that. That's in the works for maybe later on this summer or in the fall. It's an interview you're going to want to sit through because it's captivating. Rich really knows this stuff. Uh, he's meticulous. He's a trained observer. He really knows what he's doing, what he's looking at. He's had two incredible sightings, only one of which we we had time to mention and talk about in the film. So, um, yeah, keep your keep your ears wide open, and you may even want to take notes on this one. It's great. Yeah. Well, you know, Rich also is going to be a part of this conference we're coming up. We talk a little bit about this debate that we're going to have with Rich uh, and another Sasquatch investigator by the name of Thomas Seaweed. Uh, and it's going to be a, an interesting debate for sure, because we're going to talk about the woo, the flesh and blood and the paranormal and the difference between the two and why people believe what they believe. And Rich has a strong opinion about going from the world of a police officer, having a flesh and blood encounter to looking at Sasquatch as being linked to something a whole lot stranger. But you guys have wandered across this, you know, as far as interviewing witnesses all along the way beyond just rich you know you have the stories from myself and and daryl we we get into the fact that maybe we rush into the paranormal too quickly and i think it's it's important to at least acknowledge the fact that that's a possibility because not everything is supernatural but when you get into something like with rich he is so meticulous and he's leaning into where the trail's going as a police officer and i think he's a actually a uh, a professional tracker through the SWAT team. So it's not as though he's short on evidence and training. And that's where he leads with it. Um, I don't know, Jill, talk a little bit about what you think as far as Rich's evidence, as far as this being very strange. Well, I think uh, his whole, if you take his introduction from his first sighting to where he is now, I mean, he followed the breadcrumbs and when he he got to that point where he couldn't deny what was going on and mm -hmm. he was trying i mean he was taking a scientific approach and uh was looking at everything 
under that lens. Mm-hmm. And he just, he, he reached the point where he's like, this is not adding up. I need to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he was able to kind of step outside the box of the, like the classical Newtonian science uh, and its limitations, I think mm-hmm. that's when, that's when uh, the story really gets interesting. You know, when someone's on camera doing a first person narrative retelling of an event for myself and a lot of other people, you have to gather your thoughts and you have to think with your eyes a little bit. But Rich, and I'll pose this question to you, Mike, as far as a cinematographer here, I've seen the interview, the stuff on the cutting room floor. I've, I've filmed Rich before. He's an intense guy. When he's looking down the barrel of a camera, he does not break eye contact. What's it like to to film somebody like Rich that wants to be, I mean, he's not in the shadows at all. He He's just with you on camera, intense. Talk about that. No, I mean, intense is the perfect word for it. I mean, I mean, you could you could see it in his eye contact with the camera, <laughs> yeah. um, but you could see a, I mean, deeper than that, you could, you know, you could see into what his thoughts were as he was having his encounters and, and that, you know, he works at, you know, as Brett said, he's a trained observer. He's a very perceptive guy. That's his job. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after seeing something like that, you know, do you lose trust in the institutions that you operate within? And um, you really see a picture of a guy whose world is really turned upside down. Um, and just the beginning of that process and his journey. Um, and we, you know, and it's, it's one of the longer interviews we had and definitely Mm -hmm. in in my opinion, the most fascinating one, Mm -hmm. just because there's so much, there's just so much there and there's so much transition and there's so much, um, exploration. And that, you know, that's why I loved it. I just mm-hmm. think he's he's just fantastic on camera. It's going to be an interesting uh, conference coming up here, too. If you want to meet Rich, uh, you can see him on camera for the uh, sequel coming out. We talk about that Flash of Beauty Paranormal Bigfoot premiering at the second annual Fork Sasquatch Days. Rich will be on hand, uh, not only in the sequel, but um, for this debate that we have scheduled at this conference you can get tickets at sasquatchthelegend.com if you'd like to do that also you can come meet us uh in mcminnville at the uh mcminnville ufo festival coming up the weekend before memorial day weekend so i guess that would be the 19th uh we're going to have a booth there uh for not only the podcast but for the documentary Uh, i'll have some of my bigfoot uh wood carvings there along with some books and you guys will have swag you'll have uh flash of beauty gear there as well um you know come pick our brain uh if you have not been to the mcminnville ufo festival it is a party for the paranormal and for those interested (laughs) in the odd and so it's it's a fun environment and there's i think travis walton is going to show up uh if you want to get tickets to go meet travis walton i think he's going to be one of the speakers there um, they always have great UFO speakers as well. But if you just want to walk around McMinnville and uh, come check out UFO stuff, they got a big parade coming up on Saturday. So we'll be there. We'll have a booth. Uh, come say hi the weekend before Mc, uh, Memorial Day weekend in McMinnville, Oregon. All right. So a lot coming our way and we hope to see you out in McMinnville. But let's get to why you're all here listening. Our interview with Rich Germo, let's go ahead and start it now. All right, with me now is co-founder of the Olympic Project out here in my neck of the woods in Washington State, Rich Germo. Hello, Rich. Hi. <laughs> A man of few words here. As I said earlier, and I think that um, there's a lot to get through with a guy like Rich, but, you know, there's a lot on the cutting room floor with this documentary. And uh, as I was talking to the guys beforehand here, I first heard your name as it relates to your experiences, not only as a witness up this way and your involvement with Derek Randall's and the Olympic Project, but 
also your work with what is known as the Sasquatch Genome Project, better known by layman's term as Melba Ketchum Study. So my question to you is, what was your involvement with the Genome Project as a sample submitter and beyond that? Uh, I did, like I said, I did field work where I basically used my skill set that I obtained basically through law enforcement and tried to put that into my Bigfoot work where basically I was out there trying to get biological evidence or whatever other type of evidence that was supportive that I could find to add to the study at that point, in addition to what we were doing with the Olympic project. Mm-hmm. But um, that's about it. Okay, but you were in constant contact with Melba Ketchum, uh, you know, on a semi-regular basis, if not a regular basis, compiling this study here. Just explain to the folks who are unfamiliar, unfamiliar with the study itself what you were trying to do and where things ended up. Okay, so basically we were try, trying to obtain biological samples of Bigfoot that would be suitable for DNA extraction like hair, saliva, tissue, uh, blood, whatever that they could find that we could submit to this study that uh, she was doing extensive DNA work on to include mitochondrial and um, uh, nuclear DNA. And um, there's a couple of benefactors involved, Wally Hersom and uh, Adrian Erickson. And I knew Wally because he had been the benefactor of the Olympic project and I was on a personal basis with him. I was on a personal basis with Melba too. I, for, you know, just to talk and we became friends and for moral support during the study and through the whole entire process and what, um, essentially we were all exposed to and what we learned through it based on the topic and based on even the results, I guess you could say, and uh, it got to be kind of a crazy thing, really. Um, well, Rich, how was Melba even found? And for those who don't even know who she is, what's her expertise? Because just from the streets, people will say that Melba is a lot of things that she's not. First of all, they'll say yeah. that, hey, th- she's just some veterinarian that got lucky with this Bigfoot evidence that was coming her way that she didn't know what to do with. And it was all, um, you know, put together hastily and done incorrectly. Is that true? Well, no, I don't think so. I think what happened, the first thing was Destination Truth. <clears throat> and they got some hair samples in a nest in Nepal. I don't know what country. And she was involved in uh, veterinary science because she got her own lab, in her, uh, her own office. And then also she had a DNA lab, too, that she ran on the side, I think, at her office, <clears throat> where she did some uh, forensic work and stuff like that. And... Um, she tested their samples for them, and it came back um, presumptive for what they believed to be Sasquatch. It was a new thing that wasn't in GemBank. And then, just so happened, she was getting involved with Dave Politis really early in the beginning of that thing, and uh, it just so happens that I had been sitting on a sample for a few months, three or four, that I had obtained up from a camera site that I got some pictures of one, and then I swabbed it, which was what I thought I could see saliva on it and had two samples in my freezer that were all in evidence tape and stuff for a matter of like, I don't know, like I said, about four months. And I've been talking, see, I was talking to Jeff Meldrum like weekly too at that time. And then he's the one who, uh, he knew I had the samples and he -hmm. recommended her to me. So I got her information through Jeff Meldrum where Mm -hmm. I sent her the saliva samples and then I started a rapport with her. And then uh, I was able to help secure some funding through Wally Hersom for into the study. And so, you know, that was a five-year study. And I, at the, I probably didn't talk to her every week for the whole five years, but there were at least like three of it, probably, legitimately. I mean, at least weekly, because I was asking her all the time what's going on with this, because I think I had like, well, I only had credit for one sample, I think sample 11, but... As you can see in the study and the supporting documents, I, I supplied like some written documents that went along with it, were like police reports that just basically explained the narrative of the situation and the evidence that I found and how I, you know, 
procured it and everything and how it was packaged and what it was and everything like that. And I sent Meldrum copies of these dot and then I sent her sent her as well at the same time with the uh, biological samples. And even I sent Meldrum a lot of hair from right. one of the sites. Uh-huh. So you can read about all that in there. But, you know, you had said something earlier about where, oh, I think it was in the pre-interview, sorry. But we were talking, well, maybe I should just let you ask another question. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> I mean, here's, Brett, I'll ask you and Mike and Jill. You know, this was one of the early interviews that you got is sitting down with Rich. And I believe it was over like a five-hour pre-interview, right? It was a long time. Yeah. It was a long time. Yeah. It was a long time. And I remember you guys coming back afterwards and Brett, you just kind of turned to me and said that was a super intense, one of my favorite interviews that, you know, we've done so far. So I imagine that you guys had lots of, you know, information from Rich that day and you probably have your fair share of questions, uh, you know, for Rich as well. But um, as far as, you know, the intensity of what Rich has done out here on the Olympic Peninsula looking into this stuff. I mean, you're in a whole different position now to where you were, you know, five or six years ago when you were deep into this stuff. But when you were doing this DNA study, were you also an active duty police officer? Uh, yeah. Okay. I, was a detective. I quit being a detective in 2009 when I ran for sheriff. Okay. But I was a detective up to 09. So those Sasquatch pictures, I think, were in July of 2009. Mm-hmm. That's when I got them. So I, I think I was still a, a detective at that time. Yeah, I know I was, but it wasn't very much longer. But yeah, so I was a regular detective, and I was on the SWAT team too, part of that time, too. I think I, I got all that, too. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, busy. it's such a rare asset for them to have, I imagine. So it's, it's quite a get as far as evidence collection is concerned. And it's a... I mean, as far as the documentary is concerned, Brett, Jill, Mike, um, you know, there's a couple of people with prior military experience or prior law enforcement experience. Todd Neese, for example, who we haven't spoken to yet, um, we'll be talking to soon. And um, what does that mean for the documentary as far as credibility is concerned when you have someone like Rich with a previous law enforcement background? It, it, it lends a ton of credibility because they're trained observers. He's a trained observer. And he, he knows what he's looking at. It, this is not a case of misidentification. Mm-hmm. Both instances that, that, that Rich had a sighting. And so this, this for us, I think for, for, I speak on behalf of myself here, um, but I know Mike and Jill, I know the three of us were really excited about Rich's interview. And, and when I say I speak on behalf of myself, I can say that Rich's interview was probably my favorite interview of the entire documentary because the detail the detail that we got in his interview and the meticulous way that he went about, you know, cataloging and describing his sighting, it Mm -hmm. goes a long way, you know, and I feel like when people think about credibility um, in, in the characters of our witnesses, I think, you know, a lot of people out there think, think of rich, you know, Mm -hmm. probably at the top of the heap. So for us, that was a really exciting interview. And I remember how excited we were to get up there and, and get the interview on camera. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rich, you have a video on YouTube with over a half a million views on it, and it's just you, one camera, sitting there talking Bigfoot. I think it's maybe a 20 or 30 minute long interview just kind of done out in a, in a woodshed or something like that. It's very simple, low budget, but the, the information, the data, the intensity of you retelling everything here. And, you know, a lot of the conversations that we're having here on this podcast assume a lot from the listeners. I mean, we've mentioned some names here like Jeff Meldrum. I'm assuming that the people that listen to this podcast are at a different level of interest than the average listener. And and included, including someone like Rich, I assume most of the listeners here probably already enjoyed Rich's interview and want to look into uh, stuff that he's doing here probably in the future and, and part two. But um, as far as where you're at now, Rich, you have stepped away. And, you know, Rich is only about 45 minutes away from where I live here. So we see one another we may see each other this next week here and i i know a little bit about rich's schedule and what he's doing as far as bigfoot research which in this case is nothing but yet you live like in prime habitat um 
tell people a little bit about why that is. Um, I guess I'll go back to the DNA study because there was one more thing because I think it lends into this ultimately. And it was a combination of that plus what happened to me at Harstein Island and the subsequent stuff that happened after. And uh, it started with probably when Melba had talked about to me in private, she was kind of puzzled because when they ran some of these samples, even though they knew it was pristine DNA that wasn't damaged, <clears throat> you know how DNA is a double helix? Well, part of one side of the helix was missing. Like, it was gone. It was not visible, but she knew it wasn't damaged DNA, but it wasn't there. She couldn't see it with her eye. And uh, she, that's when she came up, well, I won't even say it, but it basically she thought then that maybe it was in another dimension, and that's why you couldn't see it. And it didn't sound like, that was kind of a foreign thing at that time, because that was back in, like, uh, 2000. Well, wait a second, Rich. What do you mean you won't mention it? You just mentioned it. So what weren't you mentioning? Well, she made a stupid comment once, I think. Well, I wouldn't say a stupid comment, but she made a like it's probably floated around out there that she mentioned like like maybe that they were hybridized with angels or something like that mm-hmm. and that's why you couldn't see part of their dna and i think people necessarily took that the wrong way and uh i don't think it kind of helped her at the time um but maybe she wasn't that far from the truth i don't know but um it kind of lends to potentially what uh i would say mm-hmm went towards the other part of the experience that we had with that study because we talked a lot amongst each other and we all noticed that our phones were getting tapped while we were talking and I we could hear it pick up and we all knew what it was you could hear the click and um, and then the level of uh, oh the level of the um, I can't I don't know what what the term was like nature we had nature they were the first journal that basically had it for in perpetual review for like a year and a half and um they leaked information and they i think they they undermined people a little bit to here and there and really it wasn't professional at all and it seemed like more or less they were trying to sink the thing rather than to help it succeed <clears throat> and then we went on to another journal and the same results and they end up self-publishing but basically whatever we were close to finding in that study was I think really close to a really significant truth that um, really being hidden from us essentially. And I think that that's why a certain level of, uh, it seemed like they came down on her pretty hard. Her whole life's been destroyed since that thing. Her, her lab went mm-hmm. under, she got an F from the better business bureau right after all this stuff happened. And, uh, she can't testify anymore as a forensic uh, expert witness in court. And um, she's ruined, essentially, just because of this one mm-hmm. thing. And um, you wonder well, why. Let me, do you feel like that ruined you at all? Oh, no. I mean, I wasn't, I was just part of it. I wasn't one of those people. But I mm-hmm. certainly think that uh, every anybody who was in that study probably was on the radar of somebody who was paying mm-hmm. close attention because mm-hmm. we were onto the cover up of a really big lie that spans much, a lot of different stuff. But I think Bigfoot in particular is potentially because of the, uh, interdimensional tributes and all of these, you know, like my experience where they kind of displayed to me that they defied time and space as we know it or, and are bound to it. Right. It, it lends you to believe that they may be connected to something that we are kind of unaware of, like, interdimensional type stuff like inner space and not outer space, something like that. And maybe that, you know, the, the military industrial complex, and I won't get in too far into conspiracy, but maybe the military industrial complex and the central banking system working together and essentially trying to maintain a certain level of control over the people have led them to believe in, in something that maybe isn't true mm-hmm. on a really big scale. Now, Bigfoot in particular, the existence of it and its actual attributes lead you to this truth doorway that if you enter it, you know, it kind of starts to open up a lot of other things to you if you're paying close attention. 
right? And um, maybe we were really close to it with scientifically with the DNA showing like series of tributes to this thing that show interdimensional capabilities. I don't know, like inner space, you know, which is maybe the far. They don't want you going anywhere near that. So potentially that's why it mm-hmm. all ended up the way it did. Well, so rather than walking back the comments, you know, like some people do, when the rubber meets the road, um, you and even Melba, um, you say that she was ruined by this, but yet she hasn't walked back of the evidence uh, and her findings, and, and you certainly haven't either. Um, in fact, you guys have leaned in twice as hard, maybe maybe Melba a little more privately than you. Of course, you both are pretty private, but... Um, I don't know, Jill, Mike, maybe I'll bounce a question off of you looking over all the witnesses that you've talked to. And I know we're getting into the paranormal thing here uh, twice as quick as maybe we should be, even though we can't help ourselves because of the <laughs> the temptation to talk about the truth here. As far as I'm concerned, you know, the paranormal and Sasquatch are, are intertwined and there's no way to deny it. But um you do you think that's a mistake at all? Let me ask you, Mike. Is that a mistake that we uh, are leaning into the paranormal too quick here? Do you find yourself because you you're pretty new to this, Mike? Um, and I've asked you all individually whether or not you know my take on this or Rich's take on this is is a mistake. What do you think about us leaning in on the paranormal too quickly? No, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a mistake to lean in, you know, this quickly. I mean, you can, I mean, there's, there's so many people out there discovering or researching the scientific impact of it, but Mm -hmm. you know, why the hell can't we get into the paranormal too? I mean, there's just so many questions and so many, you know, Rich was one of the first people we talked with that Mm -hmm. they kind of brought up, you know, just strange aspects of this phenomenon and i don't know how you can't go into the paranormal Mm -hmm. i mean just you know it's the way it moves the way it materializes dematerializes um mind speak all of that kind of stuff you know Mm -hmm. that's that's paranormal evidence and if you're not looking at that and exploring Mm -hmm. that i think you're you're doing the subject a disservice yeah jill first off tobe we should have just we should always dive in with the paranormal first okay. and foremost in every discussion. Um, <laughs> Agreed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Talking to my parents. We'll just start right there, you know, paranormal. <laughs> um, so what I really appreciate about um, the interview we had with Rich was he, he talks about his first sight, his sighting when he was on duty and he was a non-believer. He said in the interview, and I quote, I thought it was all a fairy tale. Um, and then going into uh, his research and how his scientific approach to it, you know, and like Brett had mentioned, the meticulous approach to how he was gathering and how he was conducting his research. And then as things outside of the ordinary started happening, he couldn't discount it and how you know, like he said, he's a trained observer, so he has to take everything into consideration. And uh, I think that, and thank God he, you know, Rich, you are open-minded because I think a lot of people who could have been in your situation would have just brushed it off and um, tried to make up excuses or uh, play it off as coincidence. But mm-hmm. the things that were happening to you, especially, uh, and I don't want to spoil too much in the sequel because we do get into the story about uh, how your story about driving home and uh, the time space uh, being jumped. And uh, I just think that I I think there's we can't ignore it. And especially you, you were like you became it almost seemed like the more you were open to it, the more it was kind of like the law of attraction. You started attracting more of it would you agree with that at all yeah well this is what i just talked to toby about this the other day and i think what bigfoot was for me because we'll get into we won't get into other stuff because i i mean this thing goes beyond this for me it it just kept going it just just happened to be it's like 
it's the follow the white rabbit moment, you know, from the movie The Matrix, where they say, you know, you see the rabbit and you follow it because it's something out of the ordinary that it's not supposed to be there. And then it starts, if you follow it the right way and do what you're probably supposed to do, you don't get stuck on it. What you want to try to find out is where does it come from and why is it here, you know, and and how can it do the things that it, it can do? And you have to try to ask yourself those kind of questions, and what it ends up leading you to is that you have to start questioning a lot of things um, about what you think. And uh, ultimately, it leads you to a place that uh, you have to essentially form a new perspective based on what you learn related to this topic. Now, were you warned at all, Rich, by people on the Olympic project or in the Bigfoot community, not to ruin what you had as far as evidence concerned, even though, even though the evidence was pointing in a certain direction, were you, you know, warned even in private? No, I don't think I really gave them time to react to it, to be honest with you, because it's like when I go, I don't know. Nobody warned me. Nobody said anything to me. I just did my thing. And I kind of separated myself from mm -hmm. it all at the same time. I kind of, you know, it was over a period of a couple of years where I kind of pulled back out of it, where I started to slow down my research and where I just kind of cut off all communication. Because really, at that point in time, I was at the point where I just really didn't know what we were dealing with. And I didn't, I thought it was maybe reckless or... Uh, Essentially, I didn't want to be out advising people. I didn't want to do like expeditions and stuff where we're teaching people how to go out and solicit or look mm -hmm. for something that we really don't know or understand. And I had a, mm -hmm. a, a fairly, you know, rattling experience um, mm -hmm. with something that had the ability to project power and, and, and energy, probably in the form of frequency, to manipulate you and. Uh, to get some sort of a emotional or, or physical action out of you or an emotional response. And, you know, and then they, they use other mechanisms to basically um, remote locate you. And they, and they want you, like in my case, I think that, you know, they wanted me, they knew that I would consider and understand the tactical the ability and the, the projection, the power, meaning that, that's really what was behind it. They want them to see the ability that we can do these things, right? That we can defy this or that. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, it seemed kind of reckless to send people out that really don't know what they're getting into to go out and look for something like this and, and then solicit contact or, or ongoing interaction. I didn't know at that point. So, I, I, you know, I didn't really feel comfortable with going in the direction where people were going to go. And, right. Uh, right. Do that. Train people, essentially. And well, I mean, you're a whistle. You're you're a whistleblower for the, you know, as a police officer, and you're a whistleblower when it came to this as well. And I know that you must have got some pushback because of the fact that you were just willing to speak truth, no matter what the consequences I think were. I mean, you don't have the less... same. You don't have the same. You know friendships you're not involved with the community like you used to be so there was i mean there was some friction well i think that they mostly thought i was crazy probably and they mm -hmm. didn't want to um my ideas were probably a bit too radical for for what their picture of what this thing was and their and, and what their uh how, what what kind of what kind of uh, i guess interaction or relationship they wanted with whatever they wanted this thing to be so Whatever I thought and said, and said, and what what my experiences were and how I interpreted them, I think was threatening overall to they really wanted. So they didn't really care about the truth all that much, or, mm -hmm. or what, or, what or, or paying attention to me. And they were just more or less glad to kind of see me disappear and go away, even though I don't, you know, I'm always kind of around, but um, I don't talk to any of these people. Just you, nobody else. <laughs> and uh, I, that's kind of what I think. I just I, I think that I'm not really um, I'm just kind of 
different than on, on the from them in that way, and they maybe mm-hmm. the truth that I have is a little bit threatening. Yeah, but would you say that you were hesitant to, as far as get, getting closer to the phenomena as it presented itself? And talk a little bit about if you feel comfortable about that hesitancy to look into the research, even privately. Um, what do you mean, later? Yeah, well, I mean, I know that you're in a different place with it now, maybe than you were a year ago, but there, I mean, Bigfooters call this the push-pull effect, right? Where you're pulled in and pushed away all at the same once. There's a huge adrenaline dump when you look into this phenomenon and find out that it's real, but there's also consequences of looking into it for the fact that it's not some damn dirty ape. Um, just talk a little bit about the complexity of that. Oh, well, well, sure. I mean, I kind of already kind of touched on it a little bit because, uh, at least in my opinion, based on what my experience is, you know, and after I've had enough years, I've had years now, it, since my Harstein incident happened, you know, that was mm-hmm. 13 years ago now. So I've had a long time to think about all this and to utilize everything I've ever seen or everything I've known or every experience that I've had and to be able to really put... Um, try to consider the gravity of the whole thing, basically, especially the Harsing incident and everything that happened after, but but even the incident itself and the physical attributes that I noticed at that time. And then my experiences now where this has all led me to and, and the fact that I guess I'll just have to tell you what I think that I think that there's some sort of a higher being that, that um, resonates at some sort of a, a, at a higher frequency. And so they're not governed necessarily by the same three-dimensional prison that we are and they don't have to buy completely by the limitations of it so and if they are resonating at higher frequency you could also think that they potentially are of, of uh, lower density so they even though they have this large immense size and they look huge and muscular that maybe something that we think is that visually looks to us like it could be a thousand pounds maybe it's only like 400 or 500 pounds so it would have less of the gravity effect on it than we have, meaning that gives it a, these things the ability to maneuver the way they do or walk basically essentially silently float essentially what people could say or you know or um, climb these trees and not bust the limbs off or just move the way that they do because maybe that um, maybe th- their actual physical makeup you know the fact that they may be resonating at a a much higher frequency than we are, but able to still reside here is giving them this extra ability, you know, makes sense to me. Right. Any other questions here from the gang? I could keep going. Yeah. I want to, Rich, I want to go back to the nucleus of, of, of what we were just talking about the paranormal. Um, Seeing as how you've been, you know, in, in, in deep on both sides of it, you know, with folks that are, you know, for and against the paranormal, what do you think it is about the paranormal that scares people so much? Why, why are people afraid to say that, you know, this is something that, yeah, science doesn't have the means to measure or observe right now. Like, you know, Newtonian science suggests it does. Why can't people kind of open their minds to it in your opinion? I think it's at the level, I think it's the amount of time that they've been exposed to it, right? And their awareness of it, of this paranormal type stuff, the TV shows, the, the conditioning, it's been integrated as, you know, and part of their psyche now over the last, what, 10, 15 years in a heavy way, even with Unsolved Mysteries and stuff. But really, you know, with Monster Quest and shows like that, and then the ghost shows and, and UFO stuff and the movies and everything else, it's integrated into the psyche. But, you know, everybody has, you know, this picture and the viewpoint in this, and this, you know, this life that they depict and everything, how it, it sits. And I think that the paranormal in particular starts to lay challenges in a lot of brainwashing and conditioning, especially at the state we're at now where we're at an advanced state in it where people have, you know, consumed it to a certain level of, where they're at now where they actually want to see physical proof 
you know, they don't want to talk about it anymore and see the investigations. They want to see where it all leads to and what it all means, right? But maybe they don't really have the enhanced perception at this point to go along with what they kind of desire because they're still stuck in the old way of thinking and the old life that they're essentially indoctrinated into. And so we're at a position, I think, where they really don't want to know more, but at the same time, it's to protect themselves and to maintain what they have. And I think that we're going to probably end up pushing through that at some point for December. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I think that's kind of what we're, where we're at right now. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense, Rich. It, it feels like, you know, as we progress as a spiritual society, and I'm not talking, you know, religion per se, but, you know, I think there's, there's going to be some events and there has been some events that have brought people closer to spirituality, you know, obviously in the last 20 years, um, maybe even starting with 9-11, that might be the big dividing line in the sand where people have, have, have thought about, you know, higher beings and, and, you know, when we really got to kind of look evil in the eye. Um, and so maybe as we progress as humans, I feel like it's natural for us to evolve as spiritual beings. And, and, and maybe that that's when we get to that point where someone realizes that it's like the wind, you don't need to see it. You see the, the actions of the wind, but you're never going to see but, the wind. Well, yeah, it's like, I think, uh, you know, it's kind of this, I think you have to like be there before you can go there for one in your mind, you have to be there before you can physically go there. You know? Yeah. And, and yeah. And the other, uh, yeah. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head probably really. And just to piggyback on what Brett was saying, <clears throat> Rich, what do you think, what do you think is going to move the needle for uh, the masses to accept and start uh, changing their, their way of thinking to consider the paranormal as something that is normal. Uh, I don't know. Do you really want to go down this road? <laughs> I mean, you're, what you're asking is if um, what is it going to take to rattle people enough to essentially start to get them to think about everything in a different way. Well, it's going to take a great interruption in their lives probably in order for us to get to a place like that because everybody is kind of stuck living a material life, you know, based on certain disciplines and principles that we have in place now that is kind of contradictory to a point of, I guess you could say enlightenment or sex accession or however you pronounce that word into a higher consciousness or different perspective. I mean, we're still dealing with pretty um, primitive social problems, I guess you could say right now. And and you look at humanity in in general, and so you're at one point you're you're in a in a spiral of regression and acceptance of regressive behavior. And then the other side of it, you want to be progressive and move to a different way and higher way of thinking. So both of these things happening at the same time is pulling. So one of them is going to have to give way at a certain point. And I think ultimately there's enough people that want to do better and not regress. And, and it may not be the minority, but it may be enough of a super minority. Or it may not be the majority, but it may be enough of uh, a super minority to be able to, to kind of uh, raise things up high enough to overshadow i guess all the all this regressive behavior that you see okay well okay let's think about this <laughs> well, well, if we were to take a step back like it, when you hear of uh, of researchers and investigators going out in the woods um what the people who are just kind of out trying to have an experience or just to, to try to see something or maybe to find a print um what what would your what would your recommendation be like what what should they be doing to be able to open their mind uh while they're out in the woods to uh to a bigger experience well i think this i think that everybody has to start somewhere with this thing and and to work their way up 
it's a process, right? And people seem to level out at different levels in this, and some people just keep going. So I would say just kind of follow it for where it goes and start asking questions related to the phenomena in general and um, just ask yourself what, what are the most obvious things. And I think those obvious things, the answers to them, will kind of lead you in a direction away from probably classical science and more in into the area that we've been talking to. And then, and once you get there, you know, you progressively probably have to start opening your mind up and um, consider all the evidence in all aspects and history and, and start even looking into old stories and, you know, fairy tales and everything else and start to wonder why all these things are, are part of our um, culture and our history and what they maybe mean and how they relate to this and um, start looking at it in a whole world view essentially and how that relates to this and, you know, and I guess, you know, lead yourself all the way up the ladder as far as you want to go. Rich, I want to go back to an interview I did in the mid-2000s with a guy named Jeff Boiler. He was a deputy sheriff in the Three Sisters Wilderness, off-duty cop, uh, hiking one of the South Sisters, and um, had a sighting. He said yeah. to me in public and in private that when he saw the Sasquatch, he profiled it as he would a perpetrator. He saw it as a perp. He saw it as a human. It was making uh, overtures to him that it was going to outmaneuver him and outwit him. It had a human quality to him. He could tell as a cop that the shit was about to go down. And so that's what really made him nervous. Now, the story goes on and people can see his detailed encounter in an episode from season one of uh, Paranormal Encounters on the Sci-Fi Channel called Watched in the Woods. Let me ask you about your encounter. As a cop, you saw something more than, you know, just a, just an animal. Um, talk to people about the difference between, you know, what you saw that day compared to another animal in the woods and why Jeff Boiler's description of this thing as a perpetrator is so important as far as a cop. I think that I've kind of, I probably have described it the same way at different points, uh, just like him, as far as I tactically sized it up, essentially. Uh, the first time that I saw it in La Push, and the one crossed in front of me, that was one of the first things I thought about because it changed my behavior because I, I had to consider the fact that I, it appeared humanoid to me. It was, you know, a humanoid type being. So obviously, you know, you consider the aspects of it and that it's got to be highly intelligent. And um, you look at its size and it's physically capable and the fact that it's undetected, um, essentially, that tells you that it's very stealthy and that it definitely has all the advantages over you in its environment and probably any environment for that matter. And that's without any type of uh, paranormal attributes or anything like that. I mean, I was in awe of it. You know, I was in great respect when I had seen it because I was like, this thing, there's nothing you could do to stop it if it wanted to get you. That's what I thought. You know, if it wanted to, if it wanted to like ambush you or, I mean, there's nothing you could do, right? You'd just be gone. And, um, and then when I saw the one at Harstein Island and how fast it moved, when it, it um, and, and silently, um, that's what I think I talk about that too. Where you know, I I, I considered it tactically in the fact that in the speed in which I saw it move, and then I t- that's something that stuck with me is the uh, um, didn't make a sound, completely silent, moving across this area, and then just it was gone and nothing. And uh, but the way I how fast it was, I knew that. Um, it was 20 yards away from me, but it was going to, if I, by the time I turned took three or four steps, it would catch me. It was like an unnatural speed. And so I was really intimidated by that too. So much so that I, I ran directly away from it because it was closer to the road instead of towards my car. Um, did yeah, you I write a, did you write a report up too, Rich? Sorry to interrupt. Did you write a, have to write a report up? I wasn't on duty. Oh, you mean oh. on the first one? Yeah. yeah. I did write a report. I wrote a, 
I wrote it in the computer system at the Lapush BD, and then um, I actually wrote a memo to the Clark mm-hmm. County Sheriff's Office. About so that is that a part of the police record? Is that something people can look up if they want to? Is that part of a FOIA request that could be had? Well, they could try to file a request with the tribe because it might mm-hmm. be in their system, and I don't know if the memo ever still exists or mm-hmm. not. I gave it to this guy named Matt Murphy, and he still works at the um, sheriff's office. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, but I think it was more of a joke. He wanted me to write a memo anyway, so who knows right. if he really turned it in or not. But I took it serious because I was I had just seen it, so mm-hmm. I was ready to I was ready to you know tell the truth, <laughs> you know, right there. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. noticed that I was physically rattled when I came in the door, and they're like, "What happened to you? What did you just see?" And I'm like, uh, "You'll never guess what I just saw. I just seen a Bigfoot at Lonesome Creek." And then, uh, but yeah. And uh, we should let Brett, Jill, and Mike know that um, the sightings continue to happen uh, in La Push near where Rich had that initial encounter. In fact, uh, just last year, there were some... The beach itself um, near La Push is a known hiker's hotspot for world travelers, right? I mean, they get express permits to go up and down that yeah. coastline, right? Uh, that... The northern part, yeah, I think so. I think down in the um, the first and second and third beach there, you can. That's just general access mostly. But the part between La Push or the mm-hmm. the Willie River north to Quinault area, yeah, or no, up to uh, Nia Bay, that is by permit, I believe. Right. So recent encounters, uh, as recent as last year, in and around where Rich had his encounter, I I followed up on one of those uh, encounters briefly uh, within the last six months. Uh, didn't have anything happen. In fact, I've had very few things happen up here in the last five or six years off my property myself. But um, maybe someday Rich can take me to one of the hotspots. I think you did take me to Hartstein Island. You and I did a little walk about there once and you found some ancillary evidence near um julie scott's case which if people don't know you followed up on a extended experiencer by the name of julie scott who is having long-term activity around her rental property correct yeah i don't know how long they had lived there but yeah that's the story i never talked to her that was all derek talking to her okay Derek Randall's of the Olympic Project, but stuff still goes out uh, on out there at um, Harstein Island. Stuff still happens in La Push, and stuff is going to keep happening all around the Olympic Peninsula. Um, I want to mention something here real quick before we move on. Is that um, Rich? You're going to be a part of the second annual Fork Sasquatch Days, which also is going to have the premiere of. Uh, Flash of Beauty, Paranormal Bigfoot coming up this Memorial Day weekend. You can get tickets now at SasquatchTheLegend.com. But Rich and I had been trying for the last three or four years because Rich has a strong opinion about his worldview as it relates to Sasquatch. And um, we're going to have a debate between Rich and Native American Thomas Seaweed, who has a, um, a very different opinion about what's going on. And... Um, that's going to be scheduled at the actual event coming up this Memorial Day weekend. Uh, talk to people a little bit about, um, I, do you think it's important to have this debate? Besides the fact that it's going to be a lot of fun and you guys have strong opinions, talk to people about why you think you should be transparent. We'll see how it goes, to be honest with you, because it's going to be, I don't see... I think that you, how can you really oppose each other? I think it's more of a complementing of each other. Because what I'm just thinking is just another level above what um, he thinks is experiencing. Mm -hmm. It's just an explanation of these events, more or less. And then you take it to these steps uh, in your own psyche, I guess, or of looking into other things to try to explain these aspects, like like uh, Ron Moore had wrote a book, you know, Quantum Bigfoot, you know, to try to explain this stuff, and it makes a lot of sense, and maybe he was on the right track. But those are just, uh, you know, a way to explain the interactions and your own experiences, so I don't know how that you really can... We'll find out how it goes, because I think that um, 
some of those people have some animosity <laughs> related to, you know, the changing of their topic. So maybe that, who knows? We'll see. We will see. Uh, it's coming up this uh, this May, the twenty uh, sixth through the twenty eighth in uh, in Forks, Washington. Uh, Thomas is nice enough to uh, to step on the stage and uh, and do that as well. And they're both real well spoken guys on the topic, and um, you know they're not short of their own opinion. They're both very certain about the flesh and blood element and about the paranormal link. And maybe it's a mix between the two. I think it might be myself. Obviously, I'm biased. I'm going to be helping host this event here. So um, that's when I need uh, my co-host, Nancy Fry, who's going to uh, take up the flesh and blood debate uh, herself here to kind of moderate and mediate uh, alongside me for this debate. I don't know, Brett, Jill, Mike, I see smiles on your faces. I mean, I know there's going to be a little bit of fireworks, but probably not as as bad as people think there might be because of the fact that these guys have strong opinions. They're both gentlemen when it comes to the subject matter, and they both care a lot about it. And you've had a chance to talk to Thomas and now uh, Rich. So tell me what you think is going to happen. I'm, I'm really excited to see it happen and just mm-hmm. to see what what the questions that arise but but my question to rich is you know um we talk about science versus paranormal activity and and you know we we've talked to in the second film you'll see an interview with um simeon hine talking about how this paranormal phenomena is is science that just hasn't been discovered yet and so you know rich you mentioned that maybe the paranormal aspect is maybe just another level of what um, of what Thomas's view are view is. Um, can you just speak to that? Do you think we're we're just uh, watching some undiscovered science with all this paranormal activity? Um, I think honestly, at least in my situation, in my case, I think that my experiences related to this topic in combination with the rest of my life and everything else that's happened to me has made me question a whole lot of things related to science and pretty much every other aspect of my existence. And um, it actually has gone against supporting science for me, to be honest, um, and has basically led me to a place that thinks we need to kind of retool everything, all of these disciplines, and maybe, you know, look at things a different way and maybe start um, investigating our past and find out if it's even the real one that we know of. Maybe it was different than we think. And that that, um, rework things up and, and find out what's really happened. Because I think that maybe we've been on the wrong path with a lot of things. And um, maybe this paranormal thing is an opportunity to straighten us out and to maybe come to a future where you intertwine like both together, what we understand as science, physical science now and this quantum, you know, that's out there and put both of them together to get the most out of it. And maybe the most out of advancement of humanity in the future, because um, maybe that's where this can help. You know, and I also think what I personally hope the takeaway from this uh, this debate, or I'm going to call it a discussion, it's going to be a very elevated discussion on the topic. Um, I'm hoping it 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 gives people the confidence who have experienced things that they haven't been able to fit into the right silo of information for them to maybe step into um, an acceptance that they experience something that falls outside the norm, outside the the flesh and blood paradigm. And, you know, maybe that's maybe that's what we can all hope for is like the, the takeaway that everyone will walk away with a better understanding of each side and step forth open minded. Yeah, I think it'll be beneficial. Yeah, I think so too. I, 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 you know, it's the, it's the right people having the discussion. If you're interested in seeing it and seeing part two, you can do it. SasquatchTheLegend.com tickets on sale now this Memorial Day weekend. 
I appreciate you coming online here, man. And um, I will be seeing you uh, in the future here shortly if uh, if all goes well. All right. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for appreciate having me. it. This has been a Resonance Productions podcast. If you have questions, comments, or your own encounter story you would like to relate to the show, email us at bigfootrevealedpod at gmail.com. Also, if you're just discovering us, you can watch our documentary, A Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed, on most major video streaming platforms. 